Social justice means applying the law equally to all people. But in practice, that doesn't always happen. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here at my law partner, Jack Derora. We practice law. We seek social justice. On this show, we reveal the conflict between the two. You know, for a while, it was just us in the office over a cup of coffee talking about the news of the day with social justice issues dominating our culture. Our focus became how do we as lawyers make a difference? And now it's not just us. We have Michelle Heritage with us today. Michelle has extensive experience dealing with the homeless system, mental health, child welfare, alcohol and drug systems. She serves on the board of the Affordable Housing Alliance of Central Ohio and Legal Aid Society of Columbus. And Michelle, you are a certified fierce facilitator. I'd like to know what that is. It sounds wonderful. Uh, Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Jack, um, I know that you have spent some time in California. Weren't you a backup singer with the Beach Boys? Yeah, that's a part of my life that doesn't get a whole lot of airtime. And if you'd like, I can give you a sample of how I used to sing. No, that we'll pass on that for now. But okay. what brought that to my mind is I read an article, and uh, Michelle may have seen this, that the uh, the uh, some of the uh, politicians of the cities out in California are looking for about $3 billion from the governor for uh, homeless aid. And the article was very specific about what they would like to do with some of that uh, money. And that kind of brings us, Michelle, to what you do and what's happening in Ohio. Is $3 billion a lot of money? It sounds like it. Well, it sounds like it, but um, if you're focusing those dollars on bringing new housing online that is affordable, especially deeply affordable, you can think about that as uh, below 30% of the area median income. It's people who are very poor. And so those kinds of builds do cost quite a bit to bring online. But when you look at how much they save over the course of time, it's pretty significant. The problem California's got is that they have many laws, some in their constitution, which um, citizens can activate environmental reviews and other kinds of things, which sounds like a great idea, but it's also been used as a weapon for nimbyism. And uh, it can often push back builds by two, three, four, five years and double and triple the cost. NIMBY, for those who aren't aware, not in my backyard, is a problem for just about every social-related enterprise anywhere in the United States. So I'm not surprised to hear that. Yes. So thinking about Ohio, and um, I guess when I think about homelessness, my parents live in South Florida, and it's nice and warm, so they have a, 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 a large homeless population there. I assume other states where it's warm majority of the year are where homeless people would, um, would go. What's it like in Ohio? Ohio kind of comes in in the middle um, of the country, and what you find in communities where the weather is more temperate is more unsheltered individuals. Uh, In California, the majority of the people who are experiencing homelessness are actually experiencing um, unsheltered homelessness on the street, you know, under the bridges, camps that you see there. In some places, like New York, for example, their constitution is a right-to-shelter state. And so although they have a large homeless population, their unsheltered population is not quite as high. Now, here in Columbus and Franklin County, we have a a national model. And so our street unsheltered population uh, tends to be uh, fairly low. 
and we have really endeavored to make sure that anyone who wants shelter can get it immediately and they can get access. We um, really have only been able to do that for individuals, single men and women, since the pandemic. Prior to the pandemic, we had a waiting list because we didn't have the resources to shelter everybody. Families, on the other hand, uh, this community has made a commitment that no family will be unsheltered for lack of a shelter bed or a resource available. Sounds to me like you're specifically or purposefully using the term unsheltered people as opposed to homeless people. Am I right? Well, people are having two very different experiences. Um, A person who is unsheltered um, is subject to the elements. They have trouble finding places to eat. Uh, We generally find that they're experiencing more mental health challenges and more drug uh, and alcohol challenges. Oftentimes, they are homeless for longer periods of time, which we call chronically homeless, um, and just have some other kinds of challenges. Now, people who are in shelters are able to avail themselves of all the help that's there. You really need to think of a homeless system as a rehousing system because any system that's doing their job is focusing on preventing homelessness and stabilizing before uh, someone becomes homeless and then ending a homeless episode as quickly as possible for a successful housing outcome for that individual or family. And so when folks come into shelter, they can get the kind of resources that they need. It's much more difficult if you're unsheltered for us to find you and deliver the resources to you. In other words, you gotta be sort of within the community shelter board program to get assistance and to make make headway. We do have street outreach teams, but it's much more difficult because folks that are living in an unsheltered situation are much more mobile. So let's say, Jack, I came to you and I am working with you. We've applied for an apartment. We're ready to go. I've got your rental assistance. I go to pick you up at the place you've been and I can't find you now. And so it's much more difficult to serve people who are out on the land. Um, It's harder to deliver medical care, nutritious meals, keep them safe, warm, you name it. If um, homelessness is tied to uh, affordable housing and then employment, uh, what happened in 2008 when the housing market went bust? Did the homeless market, for better, uh, for lack of a better term, go up? I'll tell you when we really saw a huge increase is in uh, the Great Recession. Uh, the people that we serve really never recovered from that. You never saw real wage recovery from that, especially um, poignant among African-American females who lost real wages and never gained them back. We saw a dramatic increase in family homelessness specifically when the Great Recession occurred. and homelessness tends to be a lagging indicator on economic health. So when everybody thought the recession was over, we were still working for you know two years of seeing these increases. Mm-hmm. You might say, why? Well, here's the thing. If you became homeless, you probably wouldn't call the homeless hotline as a first uh, line of defense. You'd call every friend and relative you knew, and you'd stay with them. And so we usually see um, people rarely coming from losing housing or being evicted straight to shelter. They make a lot of stops along the way, which is really difficult for them because that's very unstable housing. And when you think about, for example, a family with children and trying to get them into school, trying to get to work, really difficult situation. But that Great Recession, uh, it more than doubled family homelessness in this community. 
And I remember reading on those charts, those studies that talk about who regained their losses from the Great Recession. People at the very top of the ladder came out just fine. People in the middle economic strata gained a little, but all this, the, the studies that I've read all confirm what you've said. The people at the bottom never got back to where they were. No, they didn't. Um, which is really troubling when you think about, you know, someone who is very low income, uh, life is very difficult already. Um, any kind of issue that happens, the car breaks down, their hours get cut at work, um, their baby gets sick and they have to stay home for three days with the ear infection, they can't make rent. I mean, it is uh, a very tenuous existence when you are a very low income individual or family. How much does uh, mental health or substance abuse factor into uh, homelessness? What we see um, is that there are a, a group of individuals, I would say anywhere between 20 to 30 percent of especially our single adult population who are suffering under the weight of a drug and alcohol or um, mental health challenge, which is actually causing them to be disabled. And that's where we want to build that, what we call permanent supportive housing, that's housing with supports all around, very effective best practice in ending homelessness for folks that are suffering under the weight of being disabled by that condition. We do see about 65% of the folks in our shelters are reporting to us that they feel they have a mental health challenge or a drug and alcohol challenge. What's interesting though is you can do a mental status exam on somebody when they enter homelessness. And that means I'm checking out to see how are you doing? Are you depressed? Are you anxious? Are you oriented to you know, place and time, all of that? You can do that when they enter homelessness and you can do another one 14 days later and you will see a massive decline in cognitive function. Here's why. Homelessness is not a natural state for human beings. It is a crisis state. Now think about for both of you, when you've had a true crisis in your life, how clearly were you thinking? How, how much were you able to work? How was your health, your nutrition, your parenting, right? And so um, homelessness is both a cause of mental illness and, and substance use, and it also is um, related both directions. And so you've got a bi-directional relationship there. Let's go back to this idea of cognition and elaborate a little more on cognition going down with the advent or the occurrence of homelessness. Well, what happens to human beings when they become homelessness? Everything has been disturbed. When, you know, we all took that Psychology 101, right? The bottom of the hierarchy is shelter and food. And so when you think about a homeless episode or becoming homeless, those two basic life functions are in jeopardy. Where am I sleeping tonight? Is it safe? How do I get something to eat? Am I going to be in any kind of danger? These are very basic things, which means all your ability to make higher level decisions are, is really traumatized. Uh, it is not a natural condition for people. I say that all the time. And when people experience homelessness, they are traumatized. And it's a crisis. It's just like any crisis that we've been in. How clearly are you thinking? You also can, there's plenty of research out there that demonstrates that becoming homeless is really related to depression, anxiety, you know, especially uh, affecting children. It helps, uh, really uh, harms their ability to uh, be educated and continue to do well in school. 
And when you look at teenagers, for example, one of the leading causes of death for adolescents that are homeless is suicide. And so it is it is the worst idea in the world to allow someone to become homeless for the community and for the human being. It is to be avoided at all costs. When we uh, use the term NIMBY, not in my backyard, there are some possibly legitimate concerns. Uh, what is it like for a homeless person as far as either being a victim of crime or being, um, you know, having to commit crimes to survive? So interestingly, um, when you look at the data, being homeless, um, you are much more likely to be the victim of a crime versus the perpetrator of a crime. So this is a myth. Um, uh, folks who are experiencing homelessness tend to be victims of crime. Um, and when you look at, at, at criminality, you, you don't see a additional criminality inside um, of, of people experiencing homelessness. Very um, often, people who are very low income may have to, you know, do things that are uh, outside, you know, some legal pieces to try to survive. But the act of becoming homeless doesn't make you more likely. It, I will tell you the thing that disturbs me the most is uh, this idea, and I've heard it so many times, that, well, we can't let people who have experienced homelessness around our children. And I think they have children. <laughs> They're raising children. Um, there's nothing that be, the, you know, the experience of homelessness doesn't cause you to become a criminal or violent or any other kind of thing. One of the things that... Um drives my family crazy is when I'll stop at the a light at a corner and there'll be somebody there and they often have a sign that says homeless, mm -hmm. need help, and I'll give them money. And the question I get from my son or my daughter or my wife is, how do you know what they're going to do with that money? And my answer is, it doesn't matter to me if they're standing out on this corner and it's 30 degrees or 20 degrees, then I'm, they're selling it to me. But how do you respond to people that think that that's a, just a scam? Um, sometimes it is a scam. But I um, say this, because I get asked this question every, uh, every time I talk to anybody. What should I do? I say you should do what you want to do. If you feel compelled that you want to give somebody some money and, and you're like, I'm just giving it to this person. They're clearly needy. I'm going to give it to them. That's, that's a good decision if that's what you want to do. You can think about, well, I want to make sure they only use it for certain things. You could give gift cards out. I tell people all the time, get a pack of gift cards to various local food establishments that are easily accessible, like White Castle or McDonald's or Taco Bell, and you could give those out so you can help somebody eat. Um, I always say, though, if you want to make your dollar work hardest, you should, you should invest in organizations that are helping the homeless because those dollars can be stretched into helping someone get rehoused. What we want to do is end that crisis, not make it just more comfortable. And that's why sometimes when people suggest things like, well, shouldn't we have camps that are established across the community where people can be? Absolutely not. Uh, those are actually pretty expensive. They don't end a homeless episode. And I think that also when communities establish these kind of tent camps and things, the statement we're making is that that's a good enough thing for a human being. Oh. And that, and then yeah. we're okay with that. Mm -hmm. I carry, I don't know how I got the idea, um, those street cards. Yes. 
which have a wealth of information. Sometimes people blow them off like, I don't, I don't want help. Okay. I also try to engage people in conversation to the extent I can. You know, what's keeping you on the street? And a common answer is, I can't get an ID card. Mm. That seems to be the most frequent answer I get. Yeah. Respond to that. You don't need any form of ID of any kind to get into shelter. No, no, no. I, uh, what, well, what I meant was I can't get an ID, therefore I can't get a job. I didn't mean to speak about the shelters. Oh. Well, there are lots of folks that can help people get IDs. And in yeah. fact, on those streetcards, some mm. of those organizations will help people get IDs. It's pretty common when people become homeless that they lose their documentation. You know, their birth certificate, their social security card, their ID, and all those things have to get replaced. That's the very first thing when you start to work with someone is to do you have all your IDs because you're going to need that for housing, work, mm. benefits, you name it. Um, but nobody, I just want to be really clear to the listeners, no one is turned away from shelter because of lack of ID. We are ultra low barrier system, and we want to really remove barriers and encourage people to come inside. But um, if you hear somebody say that again, I would give them the street card and say there's organizations here that can help you, including the Columbus Coalition of the Homeless that makes those street cards that can get them linked into resources to help them. But for that person to really get that kind of assistance, it's not a matter of just stopping by. They really have to be get connected, so to speak, yeah. have a caseworker, sort of get plugged into the system, for lack of a better phrase. Am I right? I think that it is much better for folks if they've got someone that is navigating systems for them. Um, you know, it is frankly not easy to be poor. <laughs> it's a lot of work. It's a lot of knowing where to go, when to go there, who to go to, who has what, which days. And so this is, again, why you have to have those street outreach teams on the street looking for folks and engaging with people. And it usually might take some time. Um, as the street outreach worker is out there trying to get people to engage, come inside, trust them. If they don't want to come inside, we house people directly off the street all the time. We do not have enough uh, street outreach workers on the streets in Columbus and Franklin County, though. That is a place where we do need more resources, more, more trained workers uh, to do that work. Hey, one last question about the street card. Mm -hmm. The street card. When I see people in the northern end of Columbus, let's say Cleveland Avenue and 271, I, th I think to myself, why give this person a street card? He's way up here. Everything on the street card is downtown. I mean, what, what do you give that person for assistance? I'd still give him the street card because um, you might be surprised that they took the bus up to the Northland area. They also can make phone calls so that they can get appointments. And there are social service organizations in the Northland area okay. as well. Right. And so the folks that are trying to help can say, okay, where are you in town? Let us link you to these particular places. All right. Thanks. Yeah. Michelle, what uh, does the Community Shelter Board do? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so Community Shelter Board is an organization which is the coordinating body for homelessness, prevention, uh, sheltering, and rehousing in the community. We work with 20 partner agencies that do the work boots on the ground, and they provide everything from uh, prevention of homelessness to you know the homeless hotline, 
um, and the, all of the shelters in town, the, the family shelters, the single adult shelters, the specialized shelter for people who are uh, publicly inebriated, and then uh, all the teams that are doing the rehousing work with people on the street and in shelters, and then also the um, permanent supportive housing. Our role is to lead the community's plan to end homelessness. We are also the organization that does all of the data work, and we are the organization that does all the compliance for HUD, uh, the state, the city, the county, um, and many others. It is um, a pretty unique model in the community, uh, in the country, and the probably number one talk that I give anywhere or technical assistance is how do you put together a coordinated comprehensive response? So it's a not-for-profit organization. How is it funded? The biggest part of our funding is from HUD. Um, That is uh, very good. Each year we try to get more funding from HUD because that's new money that we're bringing into the community. Um, And uh, those dollars are pretty big at this point from HUD. That's about two-thirds of our budget uh, when you look at the entire budget. The city and the county are both very generous and invest uh, in our organization, the United Way. And then many private funders and our large private funders like Nationwide and AEP, Huntington, um, L brands really uh, help us uh, on the really flexible dollars for private work. Aside from the stress that accompanies being homeless, are there what are the commonalities, if there are any, among the people that you're trying to shelter who don't have shelter? Hmm. Great question. So we see a few things. One, um, oftentimes folks have not finished their education, either their high school um, diploma or they haven't received any upskilling, reskilling, certification, additional degrees, um, which keeps them at low wage work. Um, And so you see that. Uh, Folks are very, very low income. To give you an idea, our average family makes less than $900 a month. Right. (laughs) And uh, even lower in the four and five hundred dollar a month range for single women and men. And so very, very low income. Um, Oftentimes they are uh, coming from families. Uh, Their family history is one where their family has not had a lot of resources. And it's something you can think about. We call it network impoverishment. So when you think about this, if uh, one of my children got in trouble and they needed a loan, The car got towed and they couldn't get it out, so they needed a loan or you name it, okay? I would say, okay, let me help you out. And they might have a whole handful of people that they can call that could lend them some money, give them a ride somewhere, you know, let them stay at their place, you name it, resources. And connections, how do you get great jobs? Connections to people, right? People who are very, very low income often have network impoverishment, which means all the people they know are also very, very poor. And there is, I will tell you, um, among folks that are very low income, a a camaraderie of trying to help and take care of each other, Uh, of really, um, you see folks sometimes that are very low income that literally would give you the shirt off their backs um, because it's, it's this camaraderie. But that's the biggest thing, you know, that I see is um, is is low low wage work um, have not been able to get the support to get better jobs, which means think about it, guys, you got to get a skill, you got to go to school. Well, 
it's hard to go to school when you're trying to scrape by and work in full time or plus, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we see with families, challenges with transportation and child care are two big um, challenges. A friend of mine was telling me, this was when I was a member of another parish and he was trying to help this fellow who was homeless get a job. And then he said, you know, I just realized the guy doesn't have a phone number. So if he submits a job application, how is the potential employer supposed to get a hold of him? Right. Those simple things that we take for granted. It's true. Absolutely. You, you, you called it right out. It's those kinds of things that we take for granted. You know, when we came here today, we all got in our cars and, we, and the cars started. It's not just that we had a car, but we had a car that we knew reliably would likely start. And if it didn't start, we would have a phone number to call to have someone come rescue us or someone else to give us another car. It's all these things we take for granted um, when when you are not very low income. Well, I imagine the discrimination is incredible, too, if, um, you know, just uh, being in poverty brings its own discrimination. And then if you don't have... Uh, a stable home, uh, if you're moving around a lot, uh, I got to imagine that it's very, very difficult to to climb up the the ladder uh, once that happens. Um, I'm going to the bank today with a client and they need two forms of ID. And I have clients that don't have any ID. Mm-hmm. Um, they can't get a, a bank account. So, um, Michelle, tell us uh, what a fierce facilitator is. Uh, I wanted to, before we that let you means, go. That just means I'm really mean when I know. Um, so uh, fierce is a particular way of thinking about um, how you work with and communicate with folks. And it really has to do with um, being able to be transparent and trust that um, you are working in relation with another person and that I've got your best interest at heart and you've got mine. And that, um, you know, we think about in fierce about a conversation, con meaning with, and then a, a, a versation. So if you think about um, how we're going to communicate with fierce, I'm going to come up next to you as we're solving problems together, even if our problem is with each other. I have heard a little bit about fierce, and it's a um, um, kind of a global mm-hmm. uh, uh, concept company uh, to um, for communication purposes. And so it might be something, Jack, you and I should look into being advocates for our clients. It might help us. I'm sitting here a little red-faced being the only person of th- three who hasn't heard about it. So yeah, Mike, I got some learning to do. It's good stuff. Michelle, let's talk about some of the problems um, that I hear from people that speak to a big prob- uh, public relations problem for the homeless or mm-hmm. the unsheltered. For instance, a friend of mine owns a building that is clo- close to, oh no, it's right next to the old Greyhound bus station. And homeless people go into the parking lot that has a gate, and as he puts it, accost their clients coming in, you know, being kind of aggressive and asking for money. I've heard from a judge, a friend of mine in Los Angeles about, for lack of a better phrase, almost encampments in certain public building areas. I don't blame, I'm not here to put blame on homeless people for what they do because God knows how I would react. But you know, it it brings up a negative connotation or a a negative perception to the average Joe. Um, And in addition, I think it's easy to just kind of cast your, you know, throw, look down on homeless people just because 
they should be doing different something different to begin with. You know, they're just not working hard enough. Mm-hmm. With all those things, you know, how do you respond? What do you say in response to the, to those people who have these negative perceptions because of admittedly some negative interactions? Absolutely. So, you know, the fact I tell people this all the time. Any individual who is doing something which is against the law should be dealt with appropriately by law enforcement and through legal channels. And their housing status is not an issue. It shouldn't be an issue. Hmm. If you are a person who's housed and you're doing things that are illegal, you need to deal with, the law needs to deal with you. And if you're unhoused or if you're in a shelter, the same thing should happen. And I, I do think, you know, that there that we have a natural stigma um, against homeless people. We believe things about them, that they take drugs or they're all mentally ill and they're, they're criminals and all these things. And so, interestingly, sometimes when folks are having interactions, they're predisposed already. You know, the, the, they're already scared. They're already anxious. They're already worried. And so the interaction that occurs is one where one person is already coming into it in a specific state of mind. And again, I'm not saying that that aren't there aren't people that, you know, are aggressive and things like that, but I will also say there's plenty of people who are housed who are aggressive <laughs> and who do things that are illegal. Um, and so I sometimes think that we we put an outsized or oversized emphasis on these homeless people and the things they're doing. So it's not that's a really interesting point. It's really it's really the conduct that should be at issue, not our predisposition to the fact Correct. that they may be homeless. That's irrelevant. It's not relevant. Well said. What are you smiling about over there? Just waiting for your next uh, poignant question. <laughs> <laughs> I do have another poignant question. Mm-hmm. All right, so regrettably, you're leaving us for New York City. Yeah. If you had one wish that you could give for what Columbus would do next, maybe not before you leave, but soon thereafter, what would it be? So here's the thing. Because of the affordable housing crisis, because we definitely see that people coming out of the pandemic um, that were are very low income and especially homeless have been disproportionately affected with, with behavioral health issues. Because we are having, you know, problems with hiring uh, really good quality people in our system like everyone is, right? These things are all adding up to a very challenge, big challenge in the community. We as a community need to take a few steps back and we need to say to ourselves, in light of the growth in this community, the, it, the prosperity in this community, what should we be doing for the next 5, 10, and 15 years as a community in response to homelessness, including preventing it? CSB, Community Shelter Board, is a national model. It's a really great time right now with my departure, and we are planning to do a large study where we look at and say, how should this community be in relation to homelessness over the next 5, 10, and 15 years. Because I'm here to tell you, as the leader of this system, our challenges with homelessness are, are our greatest ones are ahead of us. And so we really need to think about how we get ready to have the best response possible so that all tides, all boats rise with that tide of, of prosperity. 
I'm not surprised to hear your last statement because we've had people on this show who talk about how much greater the population increases and how much the homeless population increases as a consequence. Absolutely. Um, Michelle, uh, you are an incredible advocate for the homeless and a wonderful person. We uh, appreciate you being on. I'm humbled to be in your presence. Thanks again, Michelle. You're welcome. We'll be back in a few weeks with another important legal or social justice issue, and we hope you join us so that it's not just us, but all of us. I want to thank WOSU and our sound engineer, Eric French, and his assistant, Anthony. If you like what you've heard, tell a friend. You can find us on uh, your favorite podcast app. Until the next episode, so long.